We are continuing with chapter 5. To be or not to be? Is that the question? And we are at uh, reading number 16 in this. And this is the very fine essay by uh, Ajahn Tanisaro called No Self or Not Self. One of the first stumbling blocks in understanding Buddhism is the teaching on anatta, often translated as no-self. This teaching is a stumbling block for two reasons. First, the idea, the idea of there being no-self doesn't fit well with other Buddhist teachings, such as the doctrine of karma and rebirth. If there's no-self, what experiences the results of karma and takes rebirth? Second, it seems to negate the whole reason for the Buddha's teachings to begin with. If there's no self to benefit from the practice, then why bother? Many books try to answer these questions, but if you look at the Pali Canon, you won't find them addressed at all. In fact, the one place where the Buddha was asked point-blank whether or not there was a self, he refused to answer. That was the uh, encounter with Vachagotta that um, I was reading yesterday um, that uh, from the uh, Sangita Nikaya Connected Discourses section 44 uh, when the Buddha remains silent when later asked why he said that to answer either yes there is a self or no there isn't would be to fall into extreme forms of wrong view that make the path of Buddhist practice impossible thus the question should be put aside to understand what his silence on this question says about the meaning of anatta, we first have to look at his teachings on how questions should be asked and answered, and how to interpret his answers. The Buddha divided all questions into four classes. 1. Those that des deserve a categorical, a straight yes or no answer. 2. Those that deserve an analytical answer defining and qualifying the terms of the question. 3. Those that, that deserve a counter-question, putting the ball back into the questioner's court. And 4. Those that deserve to be put aside. The last class of question consists of those that don't lead to the end of suffering and stress. The first duty of a teacher, when asked a question, is to figure out which class the question belongs to, and then to respond to it in the appropriate way. You don't, for example, say yes or no to a question that should be put aside. If you are the person asking the question and you get an answer, you should then determine how far the answer should be interpreted. The Buddha said that there are two types of people who misinterpret him. Those who draw inferences from statements that shouldn't have inferences drawn from them, and those who don't draw inferences from those that should. So an inference is say, um, something that follows on, something that uh, a particular statement implies. So that um, <coughs> to, uh, um, to uh, say, read things into a question that you're, um, that you're not supposed to, or, to, um, or to, uh, into a teaching that you're not supposed to, or to not um, pick up the inferences that, um, that something has that you're missing.
These are the basic ground rules for interpreting the Buddha's teachings. But, if we look at the way most writers treat the Anatta doctrine, we find these ground rules ignored. Some writers try to qualify the no-self-interpretation by saying that the Buddha denied the existence of an eternal self, or a separate self. But this is to give an analytical answer to a question that the Buddha showed should be put aside. Others try to draw inferences from the few statements in the discourses that seem to imply that there is no self, but it seems safe to assume that if one forces those statements to give an answer to a question that should be put aside, one is drawing inferences where they shouldn't be drawn. So are you following this? Is it clear enough? <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> no and yes. So that uh, <clears throat> these, it, it's, a, it's a little bit uh, analytical, but um, it's uh, in terms of, of the teaching on, on anatta, um, then when the Buddha is saying, does a self exist, it's rather like that. Um, similarly, the, a, a question that um, should be put aside is, like, say, for example, the 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 the, uh, the Buddha's question that he puts to Vachagota: when the fire goes out, does it go north, south, east, or west? That you put the question aside because the question doesn't uh, apply; doesn't have a, a meaning in relationship to the the reality of things. So that um, when it says that a question should be put aside, it means that the the, um, the, the, the there isn't a meaningful answer, or that um, when the the Buddha would uh, uh, choose to, uh, in terms of teaching Dhamma, the Buddha would choose to put a question aside when he saw that it didn't lead to um, the end of, of Dukkha. And so that uh, there's that famous example of him um, picking up a handful of leaves and saying, what is greater in number, the leaves in my hand or the leaves on all the trees in the forest? Yeah. And so <laughs> they they uh, understand, well, the, um, the leaves in your hand are very few, Venerable Sir, and the leaves in the forest are very, very many. And so he said, so too, what I teach you is comparable to what, uh, the, what I have in my hand, the leaves I hold in my hand. What I know, what I understand, is comparable to all the, the leaves in the forest. And why do I only teach you this amount? What I teach you is related to the ending of suffering, to um, realization, to nibbana, to peace. That's why I teach it. All the other stuff that I know, I don't teach it because it doesn't lead to nibbana, it doesn't lead to peace, it doesn't lead to, uh, to the end of suffering. So that um, he, uh, as Ajahn Tanisro points out here, uh, the last class of question consists of those that don't lead to the end of, of suffering and stress. So that either uh, uh, when a question is put aside, it means that, uh, so when he said, do, do I, does the self exist, does the self not exist, then the Buddha doesn't respond because it's like whichever way you answer the question. Like, does the fire go north, south, east, or west? You you can't answer that question um, uh, in a meaningful way, because the the, um, uh, the the question, the way the question is put, is presuming a reality that doesn't really pertain. So, instead of answering no to the question of whether or not there is a self, interconnected or separate, eternal or not, the Buddha felt that the question was misguided to begin with. Why? No matter how you define the line between self and other, the notion of self involves an element of self-identification and clinging, and thus suffering and stress. This holds as much for an interconnected self, 
which recognizes no other, as it does for a separate self. If one identifies with all of nature, uh, that's like uh, also the, the passage I was quoting yesterday from the Mula Pariyaya Sutta, they perceive all as the all, having perceived all as all, they conceive themselves as all, they conceive themselves as in all, and so on and so forth. They, delight, they conceive all to be mine, they delight in all. Uh, why is that? Because they have not fully understood it, I say. So that's kind of relating to this idea of um, uh, um, say, <coughs> a, an interconnected self, or uh, one if identifies with all of nature. If one identifies with all of nature, one is pained by every felled tree. It also holds for an entirely other universe, in which the sense of alienation and futility would become so debilitating as to make the quest for happiness one's own, or that of others, impossible. So that would be considering all to be other. So they conceive all to be, they conceive themselves to be apart from all. So a self that is totally disconnected from everything. <clears throat> For these reasons, the Buddha advised paying no attention to such questions as do I exist or don't I exist? For however you answer them, they lead to suffering and stress. And there's a very significant passage that we'll come to um, later later on, which is uh, the Buddha's teaching to um, Mahakachana, and uh, that's in the um, uh, the connected discourses on causation, where um, he uh, um, let's see, it's in uh, later on in this chapter we'll we'll quote it, but it's um, Sutta number fifteen in that uh, the uh, Nidana Vaga, uh, section twelve of the Sangita. And that's uh, uh, where <coughs> the Buddha specifically talks about that these habits of belief in that uh, everything exists or nothing exists, you know, and um, and points to uh, uh, the the resolution of that or how to find the middle way in relationship to that. But that's a little bit later on in this this chapter. To avoid the suffering implicit in questions of self and other, he offered an alternative way of dividing up experience. The Four Noble Truths of Stress, which is Ajantanisro's translation for Dukkha. Stress, its cause, its cessation, and the path to its cessation. These truths aren't assertions, they're categories of experience. Rather than viewing these categories as uh, pertaining to self or other, he said, we should recognize them simply for what they are, in and of themselves, as they are directly experienced and then perform the duty appropriate to each. Stress should be comprehended, its cause abandoned, its cessation realized, and the path to its cessation developed. So this is a theme that, uh, that Lumpo Sumato uh, endlessly, endlessly uh, addresses in his Dhamma talks. If you've uh, read any of his books or listened to his uh, teachings, or the, there's this whole five-volume collect, uh, collected teachings of his uh, over and over and over again, he will talk about the Four Noble Truths, and particularly how the Four Noble Truths are not cast in the form of I'm suffering. Rather, the, the, the First Noble Truth is not I'm suffering, um, yeah, <clears throat> but rather there is suffering, idang dukang, there is suffering. And so that the, the framework for the Four Noble Truths is it's, a, it's within personal experience, like it's the, the felt experience of the, of the present, uh, 
but it's not personalized so it's uh, the way to reflect or to the, to be exploring the four noble truths is not i'm suffering but the which is our, our sort of ordinary um sort of uh, habitual reaction like i'm suffering you know i now oh, this hurts this hurts is my uh, my leg is hurting i'm i'm in pain but to make it a, ref, a reflective process to actually be uh, developing it as uh, the uh, four noble truths as intended then it shifts to a slightly different viewpoint which is there is dukkha idang dukkhang there is there is dukkha this uh, uh, this is dukkha rather than i am i am suffering there is suffering so it it uh, appreciates yes there is this, there is this experience but it puts it into a, a different framework it's also very significant um and uh, the the way he puts it here is is uh, again very very similar to point uh, points that Lumpur Sumedha would make over and over again is that each of the four truths has a particular way that it's to be handled or the um uh, Stephen Batchelor has a, a helpful way of addressing he said rather than the four noble truths it's more helpful to think of them as the four noble tasks like the, the four different kinds of of job like you have the washing up you've got the cooking you've got the cleaning uh, cleaning the bins and you've got chopping the firewood you know. there are these four different uh, tasks that the the the, the truths uh, outline and uh, interestingly enough um, Stephen Batchelor's got a, a, a particular thesis uh, that he uh, he thinks uh, and it's and it, I think it's got some virtue to it the word sacha uh, that you as you find it in the the pali canon there's only about 500 or so places where that word sacha uh, appears and mostly it refers to honesty so like sacha paramita the the um, spiritual virtue of of truthfulness so we'd say truthfulness and the uh, sort of concept of truth as in uh, a um, a kind of transcendent reality uh, such as you know, like truth with a capital t uh, as uh, as far, as far as Stephen Batchelor is concerned, it's it's, it's uh, that's a, a very much a minority appearance, and that most of the 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 places where you find uh, such a being used as a sort of truth with a capital T are in the Sacha Sangyuta, which is the connected discourses about about truths and about the, the four noble truths in particular. So whether he's right or wrong is uh, up for discussion and consideration, but it it. Um, uh, and it was, but it really is exactly the same theme that uh, Lumpur Sumedha would uh, would emphasize in terms of the Four Noble Truths, rather than a, a truth that has been proclaimed by a divinely inspired uh, enlightened being that says you should believe this. Rather, it's four ways, uh, four particular tasks of working with uh, uh, the experience of the present, and so when we chant the Dhamma Chakra Sutta, which we do quite often, I think we did last night. Yes, we did last night. Yeah. So uh, each of the, the 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 four truths has three modes. So that, um, and as it says in the in the sutta, the Buddha said, "Until I understood these four truths in their three aspects and the three modes, then I didn't declare full and complete enlightenment. But when I did understand these four truths in their three modes, their three aspects, then uh, I declared full and complete enlightenment." So for each of the truths, the first noble truth, there is the, there is dukkha, then dukkha is to be uh, is to be uh, apprehended or is to be understood, parinyayanti. 
So the first the first mode is there is idang dukang there is dukkha. Uh, then the second one is what do you do with it? It is to be parinyayanti. It is to be understood or it is to be apprehended. It's to be um, uh, say received. Uh, Lumpur Sumedha would also say understand is a good word because it also means that you stand under it like standing under the shower or standing under the rain cloud. You know, you're, it's sort of uh, you're 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 receiving it for, as it lands on you. You're acknowledging it. So then, and the third uh, the third uh, aspect is it has been understood or it has been uh, apprehended. It has been received. The second truth uh, is uh, idang, uh, there is um, dukkha samudayo. The idang dukkha samudayo, dukkha samudayo. There is the cause or the origin of dukkha. So it has a cause and the the second so that's the first aspect the second aspect is pahatabanti it needs to be let go of pahanati is to relinquish to let go to to release so pahatabanti it should be let go of and then pahinanti it has been let go of is the third one the third noble truth dukkaniroda idang dukkaniroda this is the uh, the um the truth of cessation, uh, and then that needs to be uh, sachikata bantis. Again, sacha is uh, in this in that word. Uh, it needs to be uh, made real, or needs to be realized. It needs to be uh, fully uh, acknowledged and uh, and fully known. Sachikata banti, and then the third aspect, the third mode is it has been uh, it has been realized. Dukkaniroda has been uh, fully realized. The fourth truth, uh, is the uh, the truth of the way leading to the ending of dukkha, <coughs> and it, the task involved with that is pavetabanti. Uh, banti. It needs to be developed. Pavana is meditation or development. So pavetabanti, banti. It needs to be developed, and then the third aspect is it has been developed. So those are the four truths in their in their three modes. So it's the four uh, four tasks. Four particular tasks that are, I say, set before us, and so it's a it's a very different way of looking at it than these are four things you should believe, and if you believe them, then you'll be happy. But rather, here are four jobs: there's uh, cooking, washing up, taking the bins out, you know, chopping the firewood, or whatever it might be. The the um, that the, there's a, a relate uh, a relationship to that the the um, the four noble truths that. Um, is far more active and and uh, engaged rather than a, as a, a set of ideas to to believe in on or not. <clears throat> so these duties form the context in which the anatta doctrine is best understood. If you develop the path of virtue, concentration, and discernment to a state of calm well-being and use that calm state to look at experience in terms of the Four Noble Truths, the questions that occur to the mind are not, is there a self? What is myself? But rather, does holding on to this particular phenomenon cause stress and suffering? Is it really me, myself, or mine? If it's stressful, but not really me or mine, why hold on? These last questions merit straightforward answers, as they then help you to comprehend stress and to chip away 
at the, uh, at the attachment and clinging, the residual sense of self-identification that cause stress, until ultimately all traces of self-identification are gone, and all that remains is limitless freedom. In this sense, the anatta teaching is not a doctrine of no-self, but a not-self strategy for shedding suffering by letting go of its cause, leading to the highest undying happiness. At that point, questions of self, no-self, and not-self fall aside. Once there's the experience of such total freedom, where would there be any concern about what's experiencing it, or about whether or not it's a self? Well, that's uh, from Ajahn Tanisro's book, uh, Noble Strategy, and I feel that's a very, very helpful uh, little uh, piece, and I would uh, encourage, if you have a more perplexity about no-self or not-self, uh, go over it again. And it's an extremely common question. Um, and as he says, that uh, the people read about anatta and they assume it means that the Buddha is saying there is no self, or uh, that uh, things are not me, me or mine, or, or then empty of self, or what belongs to a self. And so these questions of, of how, well, how does that work? Because yeah, uh, if anything seems real, I am. There's definitely something going on that seems to be experienced here. So, how does that work? If this isn't if this isn't me, what what is it? So this is um, probably most of us here have had these same kind of questions or something similar coming to to mind. That what whatever you you uh, whatever's going on, it certainly seems to be <laughs> experienced here uh, by this uh, by this mind, and uh, and so this and this is the realist thing. Maybe the perceptions are not uh, dependable, or memories and ideas are. Uh, are not dependable, but there certainly seems to be something here that's experiencing it, that's knowing it, that that's the 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 the, the feeling agent, the experiencing agent, and uh, that this I was I think one of the reasons why the Buddha thought there's no point in me trying to explain this because <laughs> nobody's going to understand, uh, and it so it, it does take a uh, um, uh, a lot of uh, work and contemplation and, and practice, uh, because at least for, for myself, that, that this is how it sort of took shape in, in, in my mind, is that, that when I first came across these teachings on that self, was that, well, whatever's going on, whatever this is, it, th this is the, the, the most real thing I know, is that this mind, and if this isn't, this isn't me, what is it? But then you, you begin to, as you meditate and, re and reflect, you begin to even recognize that the word what is assuming something <laughs> to call it this a thing uh, and uh, anyway it, it harks back to that um, little phrase i quoted the other day yena yena himanyanti tatatangahoti anyatati that whatever you conceive it to be the truth is always other than that so that no matter how the mind conceives uh, conceives things that the, the the reality is always a bit different from that so that the uh, <clears throat> the approach that the, the Buddha has with the anatta uh, teaching, as he says, it's a not self strategy. So it's it's learning it, rather than trying to define or name or conceptualize what this is, if even if the word what applies, <laughs> that, that this is the the knowing.
quality, that aspect of our being that, that knows, that is awake, um, that uh, he leaves aside all, all kinds of adjectives like saying it's, uh, it's um, uh, say a permanent self or a separate self or a, a, um, a, uh, it's an uh, uh, inter interconnected self. He just leaves that aside and rather than trying to create any kind of definition, the approach that the Buddha takes is using the anatta teaching to help the mind to stop identifying with what it's not. So that if you and, and the clearest case of this is uh, in the Anatalakana Sutta, where the Buddha goes through the, the, the aspects of body and mind, and so and so walks you through uh, the um, uh, the the attachment to the the body and to the material form. Yeah. Uh, is material form is it changing or is it not changing? It's changing. Material form changes. Okay, starting off, things change. <laughs> Okay, uh, that, now that that which is changing is that subject to affliction or not subject to affliction? So that if something is changing, can it be permanently pleasing or not? Uh, well, no, it can't be permanently pleasing. It's subject to affliction. It, it can't be permanently blissful. And then he says, so that which is uh, that which is changing, that which is subject to affliction, is it worthy to be said of this? This is me, this is mine, this this is my true self. Etang mama eso hamasmi eso me ata. No, no hetang bante. No, it's it's not appropriate to say that. So that uh, with the idea that if there was a, an atta, if there was a true self, that uh, that that self would be satchitananda, it would be blissful, it would be um a, a permanent quality of, of being and it will be who and what you are uh, and uh, it will be permanent it will be self and it will be blissful and so that the buddha's whole approach is to use the anatta teaching to help to see where the attachments to the body to feelings perceptions thoughts memories ideas moods we take these to be who and what we are and that uh, rather than trying to define kind of what we are quote unquote he says let go of what you're not and then what is real speaks for itself. You don't have to define that reality or call it call it in anything or, or do any calling or, or call, call it an it. <laughs> but there, there's no def, no definition necessary. Just break the habit of identifying with what you're not: the body, the personality, your feelings, your memories, your relationships, your uh, perceptions, your moods. Then, then when that is when that is let go of. Um, then what remains? And uh, so this, these teachings on Nibbāna are essentially about that, uh, the Nibbāna being that uh, experience of the present when those uh, conceits, those, uh, those creations, those habits of mind have, have dropped and have fallen away. So I think that that phrase of Ajahn Tanisra is a not-self-strategy is brilliant because it's, a, it's like a, a strategy is a a way of approach. It's like a, a plan, like planning the the meal. Like the uh, you kind of you got a, a game plan for what you're going to cook and how you're going to cook it and where the ingredients are. You have a strategy to go about uh, how you're going to do that, so that it's a a means of approaching a particular uh, situation. And so that uh, it's okay. Starting off with the habit of thinking, I am the body, I am the personality, this is who and what I am, I am Ajahn Amaro, I am a human male, uh, 60 years old, 
living here in Hertfordshire at Amravati and say, okay, well, <laughs> let's deconstruct that. And uh, then letting go of the body, letting go of the personality, letting go of the name, the personal story, letting go of memories and ideas and seeing that every single aspect of body-mind um, is not uh, is not uh, substantial, is, uh, is empty of, of essence, um, it's not who and what we are, then what's left is the awake mind, uh, away, uh, awake mind aware of this moment that's not a thing, uh, it's not a person, it's not an entity, and uh, the, all those, those words don't apply. So the, the strategy is to help that deconstructing, that letting go occur, and that realization to, to be supported. And then, uh, the, the, in a way, the answer of what is speaks for itself. You don't have to, to, to give it a, a, a name or a form. And Nibbana is the description of the mind awakening to its own nature. When the mind knows its own nature, when the heart knows itself, the felt sense of that is Nibbana. Peacefulness, freedom, clarity. And uh, <coughs> the, uh, the Buddha was a, a genius, uh, in my humble opinion, <laughs> not very humble opinion, to realize right from the get-go that's the way to approach it because uh, anything you you call it or any way you try to define what what's real in words has to fall wide of the mark any thoughts questions comments there's a few furrowed brows yes um, the and now that was like when you're when you're inside your perception and consciousness, it's how would you how do you approach like looking at those in terms of not not self because they're so close to that they're they're so tied in with kind of the knowing aspect of the mind that like they they can get very mi mi mixed up. Well, they can. So uh, vinyana literally means um, like the V of that means separate or um, fragmented or partial. Or, uh, so it's the jnana is knowing, so the, uh, or knowledge. So it's the, the 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 aspect of mind which distinguishes one thing from another. So, but also it's, uh, like uh, it was it was pointed out earlier on. This uh, they're called the upadana khandas, the and so that they are. Um, uh, the 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 way the mind uh, grasps at uh, consciousness is that I'm feeling, I'm experiencing. It creates this separate me, who's the feeler, who's the doer, who's the experiencer. And so that uh, um, when we do the the morning chanting and we have those passages about um, uh, attachment to sense consciousness. Um, you know, it's like that attachment is also identification with consciousness. So it's rather than uh, there is knowing, it's like I know. There is hearing, I hear. So that 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 attachment or that identification is the addition of this. This is a separate individual me who's feeling. Who this is my life, my thoughts, my my perceptions. Me, the meditator. Me, the one who's contemplating. Vinyana. <laughs> so that 
that's the identification. With, I mean, a, a phrase like identification with consciousness can seem a bit like sort of airy fairy, but it's just that I'm hearing this. I'm I'm feeling the weight of my body on the cushion. I, I, you know, I'm I'm hearing this sound. I'm I'm the one not understanding this teaching. <laughs> that that's identification with consciousness. Is the 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 kind of uh, the way that 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 knowing is turned into a a, a person. So another yes, general. Yeah. Also, in the morning chanting, there's that line "Sabde Dhamma Nataki." You know, I think we we translate it as "All there is no something created or the uncreated." So I'm. It seems a bit emphatic. In, in, or maybe I'm just hearing, maybe I'm not understanding, but it seems a bit emphatic, or maybe it's the translation, or... It's the translation, and it was my translation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <laughs> mea culpa. Sorry, that was, uh, no, it's all right. We, we, there was some debate, because I, I did that translation of that particular line, and um, that was before Ajahn Tanisro published this little essay. And so, uh, so then I, so I feel a certain self arising. <laughs> whenever we chant that line, I do. It's quite. I, I confess. Whenever we chant that line in the morning chanting, it's like <laughs> not quite. But then I use it as an opportunity to to notice that self arising. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was um, the. Uh, 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 Reading there, and when we were, did a new edition of the chanting book, it was uh, I suggested, well, maybe we should tweak that because you know, this was my translation, and we talked about. It, but people said, "Well, we've been doing it for so long, and it's close enough to to what's correct, so let's just keep it as it is." And there was a general principle of trying not to change things. Um, but uh, that's uh, I would um, uh, encourage a little bit of re- internal retranslation when we get to that line. So I can, I can imagine you all rejigging it as we go along. So. It's one of my favorite lines of chanting. Yeah, me too. Yeah, <laughs> I liked it. But uh, but I do feel that uh, Ajahn Tanisro's point here is um, is very very helpful, and that um, the uh, yeah it is it's a subtle it's a, a subtle um, contrast, and the the main thing is uh, to be applying that principle um, as a tool, like using it as the tire lever to get the get the tire off the wheel, rather than as a, a thing to believe in, and that um, and the uh, and particularly the well, it was also at that time when we did the first translation. Then uh, there was uh, uh, Sumato was giving a lot of talks about um, uh, uh, the unconditioned, the uh, the unborn, the uncreated, and so on. And that, that was a very common theme for him at that time, and uh, and then would also and then he would say like the the um, the that he would use that kind of expression that the the uncreated is not self or the, that's not it's not like yeah if you your mind thinks I am the unconditioned or I am the I am the uncreated that's what I am that's also a kind of grasping, and so it was uh, in the light of of uh, Lumpur also uh, talking a lot about about these sort of transcendent aspects of reality, but and, and how important it was not to to um, uh, identify uh, with the uh, with the transcendent uh, as well as the 
mundane. So then that sabe dhamma anatta, all dhammas are, uh, are not self, it, then it was, uh, it was thought, well, let's put, it'd be better put in something about the not identifying with the uncreated as well as, as, as with the created. And so then that was the formulation that, that I came up with when we were doing that first translation. So it's, uh, it was also in the light of, of that uh, how um, the mind can, can grasp these sort of transcendent teachings. So I am the unconditioned. I am, I am the Dhamma, that's what I am. My, I, I, am the, I am the universe. I am the universal reality, that's what I am. That's the real me. And so Lumpur was, would often um, speak about that kind of thing and, and say, well, that's, that's as much grasping as, as it is to saying, I am the body, I am the personality. Say, I am the Dhamma. But the, uh, there's still that uh, element of you know, grasping and attachment there. Just to play a little bit. Please. Um, You're how, a playful type. How would yeah. you translate it instead of this? No, you can't find God. What would be correct? Well, you could say uh, both both created and uncreated are not self. Both created and, uh, and uh, uncreated are not self. Would be the simplest way of doing it. That's what immediately springs to mind. The next edition, the next time we do the chanting book, <laughs> we spent a long time working on that that, that book, and, uh, and I only got to, uh, it was about another three years or four years it took us to do the second edition, third edition. Yes. I just wondered what the discourse is there that you were referring to about the word sacha. Is that what word? Sacha. S A double C A. I just wonder what the discourse is there. I don't care what the discourse is. Well, the 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 Dhammachaka the Dhammachaka Sutta the the um that's the one that we chanted last night the Buddha's first discourse. So that's where it defines the four noble truths and the three aspects. For each of the four truths, is that the one you're asking about? Okay, I thought there was another discourse that you were talking about. That you didn't say. Uh, well, there was. Uh, what I was saying was that uh, Stephen Batchelor um, was. We were walking through the Atlas Mountains together, which was a very interesting hike, and uh, along the way we had uh, numerous uh, fascinating discussions, and one of them was he was uh, proposing this theory about the. Um, he feels they should be the four noble tasks rather than the four noble truths, and it was it was quite funny, really, because he was he was sort of putting it forward as a uh, a bit of a revolutionary take on things, and and I just I said to him, well, you realise that Ajahn Sumedha has been talking about this for the last forty years. <laughs> he, he was a little bit taken aback. I said, yeah, that that's what that the aspect of the four noble truths that he rather than things to believe in, he emphasises these are. Ways of operating, and he emphasizes the, uh, the the tasks involved. And then Stephen said that he'd gone through the the, the Pali Canon. He's quite a, a, a thorough um, uh, uh, in his researches, Stephen, and he's also quite familiar with the Pali Canon. So he counted up five hundred five hundred and forty-two instances of the word "sacha" appearing, and uh, something like uh, five hundred and ten of them all appear in that 
such a sangyuta that the there's one particular section um, of the sangyuta nikaya where the uh, the dhammachaka sutta appears it's called the Sacha sangyuta the connected discourses about truth and uh, Stephen's point was um, you know ninety percent of those references to or quote uh, uses of the word Sacha appear in that one that one block of teachings so I think it's it's uh, the fifty sixth section of the Sangita Nikaya. Quickly checking in the references. Uh, let's have a look. Bear with me for a moment. Yeah, it's uh, um, 56th section of the Sangyuta Nikaya is the Satcha Sangyuta. Okay, let's continue then. <clears throat> so uh, this is then following on from that quote from Noble Strategy. This explanation clearly points out that the Anatta teaching is simply a means to an end. On a practical level, it points to the root delusion and what to do about it. Here are some of the Buddha's words which both underscore the necessary process and also point out the joyful result of following that process to its completion. And this, uh, the next few readings all come from the Udana, the Buddha's inspired utterances. And the first one is the uh, teaching to Megya, who was this, um, uh, a monk who had... Um, uh, wanted to go off and practice by himself in a remote grove, and um, when he went, and the Buddha said, "Well, I don't think you're ready to go and practice by yourself, Megya." He said, "Well, I want to go. I want to go. I want to engage in the struggle." And the, of course, they do this three times over, and the Buddha says, "It's not a good idea, Megya. I want to go. I want to go. It's not a good idea, Megya. I want to go. I want to go." Okay, I told you three times. Off you go. So the Megya goes off, and he spends his time in this little remote grove with his mind assailed by all kinds of uh, unwholesome and unprofitable thoughts and feelings. Comes back, sort of, it's a bit bedraggled and uh, and uh, and uh, um, apologetic. Says, "Venerable sir, you were right." <laughs> and so then uh, the Buddha gives him this very very helpful and comprehensive teaching. So this is in the Udana, in the fourth section of the Udana. And at the end of this Buddha's advice to Megya, he says. Um, uh, this little summary. Contemplation of unattractiveness of the body should be cultivated through the overcoming of sexual desire. Loving kindness should be cultivated for the overcoming of ill will. Mindfulness of breathing should be cultivated for the cutting off of discursive thinking. Contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for the dispelling of the conceit, I am, asmi mana. For when one perceives impermanence, Megya, the perception of not-self is established. With the perception of not-self, the conceit I am is eliminated, and that is Nibbāna here and now. That's a very helpful little summary. Okay. This one paragraph puts it all together. <laughs> so that's the Megya Sutta. So 
We are the um, beneficiaries of Megia's confusion. The fact that he went off and got into a, into a, a kind of confused and um, uh, uh, unhappy state with his mind assailed by all sorts of unwholesome and unprofitable thoughts and feelings. So we, uh, we benefit from him having done that. So future generations of your difficult meditations. <laughs> you think, oh, that was a total waste of time. I spent the last three hours completely lost in greed, hatred, and delusion. That might be the fuel for endless numbers of helpful Dhamma talks that benefit many people in the, in the future. So anyway, this um, little succession of, uh, of practices the Buddha describes, um, ending with the contemplation of impermanence, should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit of I am. So uh, just as in the uh, Anattalakana Sutta, the discourse on not-self, then the Buddha starts off with this reflection on impermanence, because that's the most easy and inarguable thing. Okay. Material world, it changes. The body changes. Things change, right? Okay. <laughs> then feelings change. Perceptions change. Um, and uh, moods, ideas, memories change. Consciousness changes. And so then, if it's changing, then that that changingness undercuts the the um, uh, idea of a of an uh, of a permanent independent self. As he says, uh, contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for the dispelling of the conceit I am as mimana. For when one perceives impermanence, Megya, the perception of not self is established. So that that the the the, the um, entry point for the insight into anatta is is uh, anicca. With the perception of not self, the conceit I am is eliminated, and that is nibbana here and now. So we can see that also another useful point to bear in mind is we can see that as a sort of grand uh, uh, realization of ara- arahantship event, or we can just uh, uh, as a sort of point of no return. But also we can see that as a more momentary. Uh, and what they call a tadangana nibbana, a momentary realization of nibbana. So rather than the, the total um, irreversible realization of nibbana, what's called a, a temporary temporary nibbana or, or momentary nibbana, tadangana is the Pali for that. That in that moment where self-view and the conceit is is dropped, when that falls away, uh, if there's a, a paying of attention, then that what's experienced in that absence of the the uh, conceit I am is is nibbana. There's peacefulness, clarity, uh, quality of of freedom. There's uh, the the mind is awake, it's bright. There's no sense of self, and there's a a, a quality of um, of wholeness and uh, and ease. Then uh, in an earlier chapter of the Udana, he says, Seclusion is happiness for one content, who knows the Dhamma, who has seen. Friendship with the world is happiness for those restrained towards all beings. Dispassion amidst the world is happiness for those who have let go of sense desires. But the end of the conceit, I am, that is the greatest happiness of all. So again, he goes through the various different practices there. So seclusion, viveka, um, uh, for one who is uh, inclined towards simplicity, then seclusion um, uh, is uh, brings a, a quality of, of happiness and, um, uh, say, fulfillment. 
and then uh, one who is inclined towards um, non-violence and, and kindness, then establishing the heart in metta brings great happiness. Um, one who's uh, put attention into letting go of sense desires and that quality of dispassion and uh, coolness of heart in relationship to the sense world is uh, brings happiness, contentment, fulfillment. Uh, but then the, the uh, once again, the, 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 the last line is... Uh, but the end of con the conceit, I am, that's the greatest happiness of all. So it, it, it also represents or, or displays that uh, letting go of the uh, I am, the asmimana, as being the, uh, the most sort of profound insight. And uh, the brings, the, as he says, the greatest happiness of all. The others uh, are more um, dependent or, or less uh, uh, comprehensive kinds of, of happiness. We now move on to the closely related area of attachment to being and non-being. The average reader might well believe that such issues are not the burning concerns of an average day. So that most of us um, don't really wake up in the morning and think, being or non-being? And uh, that's what I'm saying here, that's what the, the point I'm making. And uh, that sounds a bit abstruse, um, but then there, but as uh, even though it might it might seem a little bit remote or, or philosophical or abstract, um, so the average reader might well believe that such issues are not the burning concerns of an average day and only of tangential or academic interest. However, there are numerous subtle ways in which our hearts incline towards the longing to be someone, be something, and then towards the longing not to be, not to feel, not to experience. Does this sound at all familiar? Probably th thousands of times in a day, the heart of the average person tilts towards bhavatanna or vibhavatanna. The former is defined as the yearning to be, to become, the latter embodying the yearning to switch off, to annihilate experience. It's in the light of this reality that these teachings take on great meaning and, pr and practical value. They describe the habits of the heart which are deeply ingrained and which continually drive the wheel of birth and death. Enthusiasm and disappointment, the return of the nemesis we've tried to escape, union and bereavement, the results of impulses to just get rid of this. If we use the reflective capacity of the mind, we begin to see how these teachings map the terrain of such habits quite precisely. They then also point the way to attitudes which will break the imprisoning spell such habits have woven. So what I'm trying to say here is how we might think being and non-being are a bit abstract and remote, but um, very often we, uh, when we, are, um, we take on a particular task, we want to be appreciated, we want to be loved, we want to, uh, uh, we want to succeed in our, uh, the work that we do, uh, we want to. We enjoy being busy. We enjoy being active or affirmed. We uh, are fed up with something. We want to switch off. I've had enough of this. I'm fed up. I just want to zone out. Uh, we want to to stop feeling. And so, if you you think through the the, the course of a day, there's actually uh, for most of us hundreds, if not thousands, of times where we are longing to be, want to be affirmed, we want to be praised. Someone says, someone says oh, you did a fantastic job looking after the kitchen today, you're great, or, you're the best pot washer we have. Um, you chant Pati Moka without any mistakes whatsoever, it's the most fantastic performance of 
the monks, you know, recitation of the monks' rules. You know, you're the, the tidiest nun that ever was, <laughs> the most spotless Anagarika that's ever walked the earth. So, these are ways that we we like to be, to be praised, to be you know, appreciated, to be to be loved, to be approved, and then. So that's the bhavatanha, the you know, being vibhavatanha is like uh, I've had enough of this. I just can't stand that person. I want to switch off. I'm just gonna. Uh, I just need to get away. Just need to to um, to uh, get out of this. Um, and it can be uh, uh, conscious or unconscious. That sense of uh, wanting to not feel, to not be, to just uh, absorb. You. I, I've had enough of these people. I'm going to go and find a really good. Uh, thriller. To <laughs> I need a detective novel just to get lost in a whodunit. You know, it's just something that isn't these people. It's vibhavatanha. It's uh, right there. You know, and so, at, uh, or um, and it's kind of you know it's it's very very common. Even uh, Ajahn Mahabur, who is known as a sort of great warrior and sort of dharma ascetic, he used to sign his letters as the old monk who loves his pillow. <laughs> So he's kind of joking, you know. He's like, yeah, yeah, you know. He he's aware that people recognize he's an arahant, but still would very humbly say, would recognize that. Gets to his kuti and goes, ah, the pillow. Yes. <laughs> so vibhavatanha. Uh, so uh, even though these might seem like things that are kind of remote, like you don't, as I say, you don't, you know, walk into the. Um, the temple and think, yeah, being or non-being, um, or into the kitchen, or into the library, or into our, our room. But the the actuality of our inclination towards wanting to be something and then wanting to not be something is is very very strong. So that um, if we start looking, you can you can see that those tendencies uh, very powerfully present in our lives. So let's read the first couple of passages. This is, a, as I said, this is a very long chapter. So it goes on and on and on. <laughs> but uh, I'll just read another couple of passages that relate to this um, uh, about Bhavatanha, Vibhavatanha. So again, this is from the Udana. This is in the third section of the Udana. And this is uh, from a time just after the Buddha's enlightenment. This is him... Uh, talking to himself. This is like his own internal reflections uh, after the Enlightenment. Whatever Samanas or Brahmins have described liberation from being to come about through love of being, none, I say, are liberated from being. And whatever Samanas or Brahmins have described escape from being to come about through love of non-being, none, I say, have escaped from being. Through attachment to existence, the upadi, suffering is. With all clinging exhausted, suffering is no more. Whatever states of being there are, of any kind, anywhere, all are impermanent, pain-haunted, and subject to change. One who sees this as it is, thus abandons craving for existence without relishing non-existence. The remainderless fading, cessation, Nibbāna, comes with the utter ending of all craving. 
Well, this is a passage that uh, had a very strong effect on me when I first came across it. In uh, It's in the um, early chapters of uh, Bhikkhu Nyanamoli's Life of the Buddha, and uh, which I read many, many years ago, and I've read m- many times over. And this had a very, a very strong effect on the mind, and that particularly that line, one, thus one who sees this as it is, uh, one who sees this as it, as it is, thus abandons craving for existence without relishing non-existence. So letting go of bhava without relishing vibhava. <laughs> to, uh, uh, and this in a way represents the middle way. That, uh, and the, the thinking mind is, is sort of left kind of grasping and fumbling and groping to try to... Uh, to get an image, a mental image for that, but it's also this is in his internal reflections before uh, he started teaching. And part of the, the this was that he said, "No one's ever going to understand this. This is this is going to be impossible to explain because the world is is committed to to being, relishes being. It only understands a being, bhava, and uh, but what it what it uh, what it relishes uh, uh, brings pain." So that, uh, and also this reflection that uh, whatever samanas or brahmins have described liberation from being to come through love of being, none I say are liberated. Or those who described it to escape to come about through love of non-being, none have escaped. So uh, he uh, uh, he realizes that if there's affirmation of existence, that doesn't do it. If there's if there's denial. Uh, then that that doesn't do it. So there's this middle way between affirmation and denial. There's this what you can call the realization of the way that uh, that things work, uh, the way that the experience of, of existence. Also, the word uh, in the, uh, and this this is also addressed later in this chapter that the Buddha was frequently uh, thought to be a, an annihilationist. That he was against. Uh, he was a kind of life denier, and was. Um, uh, was sort of his teachings are based around uh, negating existence or, or are based on aversion to to uh, to the world of being and existence and that he was a nihilist or an annihilationist that was um, that was the the goal of his teaching and and even though he he knew he was misunderstood he kept sort of teaching in the same way and uh, there's some passages later on that I'll, I'll quote where he addresses that very very directly but he he realized it was um, he was going to be misunderstood some of the time, but it was more helpful and more skillful to to keep talking in these terms that that uh, even if some people misunderstood and thought he was uh, proposing a life negation, uh, he said that's not what I. Uh, he said, uh, I'll just to quote that right now. Yeah. Well, I'm referring to it. He. Uh, He says, um, I have been baselessly, vainly, falsely, and wrongly misinterpreted by some summoners and Brahmins thus saying the Samana Gotama is one who leads astray. He teaches the annihilation, the destruction, the extermination of an existing being. As I am not uh, an annihilationist, 
I do not proclaim this. I have been baselessly, vainly, falsely and wrongly misinterpreted because both formerly and now what I teach is dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. So uh, it's a, um, a, 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 a tricky area to, to understand and get a feeling for because we come from a very life-affirming culture. And that, uh, particularly when I was in California for 15, 20 years, using the referring to these kind of teachings and and it's extremely life affirming uh, sort of um, uh, everything is good and uh, we should love the sense world and love other beings and love everything and uh, be one with the universe and so there's a very very strong uh, if not very well defined aff- sort of life affirmation ethic there which is i mean californians fun to live with <laughs> but so when you were t- talking these terms then people would sort of tighten up and and uh, have this feeling that the Buddha was was being a, a nihilist but uh, over over time and, and and referring to these teachings over and over again um, I gathered more and more uh, uh, say appreciation for the Buddha's wisdom and um, and his brilliance his genius in in sort of talking in these ways out of compassion for beings to help them understand and to not be um, uh, habitually sort of feeding their their uh, their um, uh, say attachments and this word upadi uh, I was speaking about a week or two ago is again it's a difficult word to translate that the phrase attachment to existence um, there is referring to the upadi so it's also upadi is sometimes referred to as the um, the essentials of existence, or the substratum of rebirth. Uh, let's see, I made some notes on this the other day. Um, my personal uh, preference for translating it is as um, addiction to becoming. And it's the um, the uh, <coughs> also uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as acquisitions which is a, um, the, the feeling of having got something um, the uh, the word upadi literally means supported from below like the di of upadi is, is, is comes from the same root as uh, as dhamma dhar, uh, dhar from the sanskrit which means to support or to uphold so dhamma is that which upholds so upadi is um something which is supported from from below so you have these kind of words like substratum of rebirth or essentials of existence but reflecting on it and, and uh, considering it it's it, so like an addiction it's something that's that's latent in the system that it's sort of it's a potential it's a habit that doesn't necessarily show itself all the time but it's it's there and so um the uh as he said, through attachment to existence, the upadi. So through that addiction to becoming, like so, there's an addiction. The system is habituated to that. So that's why um, suffering is because of that that addiction. When the, when the addiction is is ended, then with all clinging exhausted, suffering is no more. So that when you've got the alcohol or the nicotine or the heroin or the sugar out of your system, whatever it is you might be addicted to, or the the uh, need for affirmation or uh, success or whatever your your favorite addiction might be <laughs> your addiction to being right 
It's a, it's a, a common one. My, all my opinions are correct. That kind of uh, addictions are of all different natures. <coughs> that uh, when that uh, that addiction you are to becoming any kind of uh, that urge to be the the longing for defined being is another way of um, describing it. Upadi, when that uh, is exhausted, when the, there is no that that is like when the, you're free from the addiction. There's a sense of <sighs> I can see someone drinking and it doesn't bother me, or I can smell cigarette smoke, it doesn't bother me, or I can walk past a piece of cake and I'm not interested. Uh, that that uh, there's a freedom that comes from from the heart, no longer being burdened by a, an addiction, and so that uh, this. Um, uh, what's called the upadi viveka or the seclusion from the upadi is like the it's the most refined kind of seclusion uh, or withdrawal and that that's like uh, and the buddha had that recognition after his enlightenment i'm the only non-addict on this planet i'm the only being in the universe that is that is not addicted and that was another one of the reasons why he thought there's no point it's like how can you get you know, uh, a, uh, a, uh, a recovery program for every other being and uh, so he was um, disinclined to, to try and teach first of all and uh, the last reading I'll give this is uh, one from the Itivutaka this was said by the Lord because there are these three kinds of craving what three? the craving for sensual pleasures the craving for being the craving for non-being. These are the three. Those fettered by the cuffs of craving, delighting in being this or that, they are people in the grip of Mara, unable to escape his net. Such beings continue in samsara, round and round from birth to death. For those who have gone beyond this thirst, being this or that has lost its glamour. For whom the outflows have all ceased, though in the world, They've gone beyond. Any thoughts, feelings? Yes. I'm, I'm uh, kind of uh, trying to make sense that Baba sometimes is uh, considered as, as being, mm -hmm. often as becoming, and sometimes as existence. Or existence, and I remember. About that, which really you know, confused me a little bit, which was basically saying becoming is you don't want, if you want to become something, then you don't like what you have. So that is Baha, uh, Vibhava. Becoming, wanting to become something is, is Vibhava. And I, I just wonder why, why it's something. So, People who, who try to hang on to that view, they want to have Baba translated as being. Mm. And uh, any kind of becoming comes from, from uh, or wish for becoming comes from uh, not being with what is. Well, I can follow the logic of that, but uh, yeah. it uh, but it doesn't, that's not really how I've used I've used the terms being becoming existence pretty much interchangeably because they they all uh, so they overlap i would feel in, in in meaning and also that the um uh <coughs> the 
vibhavatana and vibhavatana, they're kind of a pair. You know, they they like the front and the back of the hand. They 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 work together as a kind of as a unit. So that you, I wouldn't say it's entirely one or the other. You know, if you see what I mean, you know, they <clears throat> because also when you say being, it's uh, the attraction of being. It, you could say is based on not wanting that lack of definition. I want to be an expert. I want to be loved i want to uh, be over there in the warm out of the cold that um that uh you could say well that i i'm uh, attracted to that sense of i am this because the, the the there's an aversion to not having a definition like sometimes in meditation it's really interesting sometimes i remember one particular i was a on a three-month retreat in the forest at at Chidhurst and uh <clears throat> I remember this one particular afternoon. I went and I left the kuti and I went and sat. Uh, I put a little sitting cloth down by the the lake and was just sitting uh, under some trees near the near the lakeside <clears throat> for about four or five hours. And there was this endless succession of my mind trying to get interested or trying to get stuck into something. And I basically I sat there for about five hours saying no, 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 no. And it was it was this endless stream of trying to become, just wanting some sort of definition, like looking for plans, looking for regrets, looking for sense desires, fantasies, looking for irritations. It's like, well, what about this? Okay, well that that sexual desire is not working. Let's let's try irritation. What's 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 wrong with the agenda? Well, that's not working. Let's let's try nostalgia. Okay. Well. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Oh well. That. Well. Yeah. It was. It was like that. But it kind of wasn't like that either. Well. Let's. Let's try a plan. Let's have a plan. <laughs> it was just like this is ridiculous. It's like okay, that's not working. Let's try this one. Like it was just sort of one after another after another, and it was just could feel what was driving it was this. I don't like this undefined present. This undefined being. I want some definition. Anything will. Anything will do. Any old garbage. There's just something to be. And so it was. It was. It was very. It was kind of fun. It was rather like Megia with it, sort of like, "What's next?" You know. But it was also kind of fun and interesting because it was so shameless. It didn't care what it would get born into or try to be. It was. It was completely immaterial. It was just anything will do. Just let's get away from this undefined quality. And so uh, you could say that's that's a. Uh, Vibhavatane, trying to get away from that undefined being to get to be something, but so they're they're connected in that way, and that also another uh, aspect of the word existence that uh, Lumpur Sumedho used to talk about, it literally means to stand out. Uh, X means outside, like exit means um, actually means he or she leaves. Exit the X means outside. Stance is to stand, that which is standing outside. So to ex- to exist, existence, is to to stand outside. So it's like the the mind is sort of stepping out into that that uh, existence. <laughs> it's the stepping out into that kind of definition. It's, it's it's stepping out to be something. So it's leaving its its root, its origin, its home, to 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 exist, to stand out, to be something. 
and so that that again it, it kind of reflects that um, the imagery of the asava the outflow and that uh, <clears throat> so that that and so it, it can sound like well so buddhism is against existence right <laughs> well yes you can say that so you want to kill everything you think that everything should be wiped out well no that's not it but but you can it, it is the the dhamma is is uh, say speaking against existence not that all beings and all things are somehow wrong or shouldn't be that way but when the mind <coughs> identifies with some existent thing it's become that thing sabe sankara dukkha that all things are unsatisfactory so that it's that that <coughs> on a on a very subtle level uh, it's sort of a refined inner level that <coughs> when you experience that existing and it was all, when i was having that that little episode in the forest of Chithurst, and there would be these moments where the mind would catch. It's like there would be a regret. It's like, oh yeah, there really is a problem with that. Yeah, I have to do something about that. And you could feel, uh, even though on the surface level there was a worry, on the heart level it's like, yes! <laughs> I'm something! You know, I'm somebody with a regret. Yes! Yes! Thank you! <laughs> and it was almost like a, a child getting an ice lolly. You know, it's like, Hooray! I got something to be, but then that would fall apart after a time. And so that that, uh, if you understand, that's what it means by existence. And when the Buddha talks about cessation of becoming, it doesn't mean trying to blow up the universe or wipe out uh, all other beings or wanting to to um, to destroy something. It's it's not that at all. Uh, there's a as a story an analogy they use. Uh, it doesn't appear in the Pali Canon, but it's they they use it in in the uh, commentaries, where uh, it's described how if you're about not self, if you're walking through the grass and you see a round shape in the grass, you go, oh, it's a snake, and you feel afraid, and then you, you you stand back and freeze and realize, oh, it's not a snake, it's just a coil of rope. Then the question is, what happened to the snake? when the coil of rope was recognized. Nothing. Because there never was a snake. So then, what happens to the self when not-self is recognized? Nothing. Because there never there was never the case in the beginning. There was never an independent individual self. So nothing has been lost apart from the illusion. Does that make sense? So what happens to the snake when the rope is recognized. What happens to the self when anatta is realized? Nothing. <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't the case in the in the first place. Even though the the habits of self view that um, the Upadi goes, but 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 I want to be <laughs> something, anything. Yeah. And uh it's it's kind of interesting when particularly in a retreat time and Often in self-retreat, when it's really, really quiet, and the mind's just looking for something to something. You can you really you can really see this quality most immediately and directly. That's like kind of hunting, like a just give me something, just give me, give me something, anything, just to, to create a self out of anything will do. Yeah, a, a, an achievement, a hope, a regret, uh, an illness. You know, illness is great. You know, 
being a sick person, you've got lots of stuff to deal with. And then, and then an incurable illness is even better. With mysterious causes that they've got strange symptoms. And you can feed on that for years. On that note, we'll leave it for this evening.